So last chapter, last section, I should say, in the book of Acts. It's been one year. Can you believe it? August of 2020 is when we started this amazing book of the Bible. And I don't know about you, but I'm sad personally that it's over. Uh, of course, we'll be like always every Sunday. We don't just deal with the passage at hand, but we pretty much journey through many different scriptures. And of course, we'll touch on Acts uh, decades from now. But for now, it's over. And uh, we, next week, we will be opening up a, a new book of the Bible. And I'm excited to announce that that is uh, the Gospel of Mark. And I think that, you know, now, we, now that we've gotten a great vision of the church and seeing how it literally transformed the nations, and now we're going to see Jesus as he is through the Gospel of Mark. And it's going to be an incredible time. I don't know how long it'll take us, probably a year and a half, somewhere around there. But it's going to be awesome because the Word of God has done so much work in our lives. And just looking at what we've witnessed, uh, let me just rattle off before we get to chapter 28, verse 17. But if you're taking notes, the title of this message, I had a hard time trying to figure out what title to pick. <laughs> There's so many. The mission continues. Uh, you can chain the man, but not the message. That one's pretty clever, I suppose. But, uh, but how about just remaining faithful? We saw Paul at the very end of his life, really, um, just, I can't help but think, I mean, you, you got to get the point of the message, right? I mean, as you look at the scriptures, there's lots of different implications, but as I was even running this morning, I was, I had a hard time, it was like a multiple choice quiz, there's going to be A, B, or C, and then there's D, all the above, right? But as I was running, I just couldn't help but think, as I kept saying over and over, what is the point of this message? And it just kept, kept swirling around in my mind, just going through and just rattle off. A, a, just, I could go on and on and on and on. Of course, we could really do in a whole overview if we had the time. But we really got to witness the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. It's pretty miraculous, isn't it? There's so many implications, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, that really, why do we even meet what would be the point of meeting if he didn't rise from the grave, right? We witnessed the birth of the church, the power of the Holy Spirit, miracles, signs, wonders, healing to attest God's word. We witnessed many come to Christ all over regions in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. We witnessed God rescue them from persecution. Unfortunately, some succumbed to martyrdom like James and Stephen we observed God's judgment in Ananias and Sapphira, but yet he grew the church even by telling us again, reminding us over and over that he takes seriously the purity of the church. We witnessed God's providence, sovereignty, moving them, witnesses to very strategic locations so that all of Africa would hear the Ethiopian eunuch and the Gentiles and Cornelius. Witnessed God softening the Jews' hearts for the Gentiles, when we saw the miracle and the trance that Peter had, observed God raising godly leaders up and elders to strengthen the church, witnessed the resurrection, or I'm sorry, the re reconciliation and the struggles over doctrine and the peaceful resolve 
the Jerusalem Council and how the church can come together in unity even over the differences. Witness God move Paul where he needed him to go in order to eventually get to where we are now in Rome. And then lastly, I just jotted these down, but witness God's protection of his church from false teachers and ultimately saw the promise of Jesus that this church can never be stopped. Matthew 16, 18. Really, the list goes on and on and on. What have you learned? What have you witnessed in this last year, if you've been with us, and as, you, as we close the final section in Acts 28? I just couldn't help but think but of a man who remained faithful. And may that be said of us, you know, towards the end of our lives, we never know. I talked to another church member this morning and just suddenly one of his sister-in-law passed away in the middle of the night. I actually happened to see this person two weeks ago and they were fine. You never know when your life is going to come to an end. But can you say with the Apostle Paul as you see the, the last remaining days of his life, really just seeing that you can remain faithful. I, it just jumped out at me as I'm running with the Lord this morning. It just, John, remain faithful. Tell the church to remain faithful in the midst of absolute chaos. You think it's going to get better? It isn't. As you read through Revelation, it's going to get more chaotic until the end. But I do know this, that those who remain faithful receive the crown. And I think that's what we're all after, aren't we? Are we after more money? Are we after more accolades or fame or likes or whatever it might be in the world might tell us to want? But really, I think that we all want the crown of life. We want our reward in heaven. I think we could say with confidence that Paul received that when he met Jesus face to face after dying in the hands of Nero in Rome in the late 60s AD. But before I ruin it for you, let's turn to Acts 28, 17. So let's just go through this. It's a delight to do this with you guys, to open up God's word and just to go through this together. But I'm going to give you the points. I don't always do this, but I thought it would be necessary so you could follow along with me. But in the midst of all that Paul went through, he remained faithful to these things. Number one, he remained faithful to not be offended. To actually love people. He loved people to the end, as we'll see here in a moment. Number two, he shared the gospel and sound doctrine. He never compromised in that way. Number three, he was bold with the truth. Number four, he remained on mission, even in the midst of opposition and being incarcerated by Rome, being literally chained to a Roman guard all day in a house. Can you imagine being those guards? What they heard? I can only imagine being chained to the Apostle Paul, what I would see as people came in and out of his house for two years. And number five, he remained faithful to 
Christ to him. As he said in Ephesians 3.20, he said, to him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all I could ask or dream. It's he remained faithful to Christ ultimately to the end. And that's what we all hope for, right? We all want that for us. We all want that for our parents. We all want that for our kids. We want those, that same thing for our family, friends. We all want them to receive the crown of glory. And how many of you know that in 1 Corinthians 9, not everybody is going to get that. Not everybody finishes. Not everybody wins. And I want to win. And I think you do too, right? So let's look at Paul again in his life one last time here. Number one, Paul remained loving and unoffended toward the people he reached. Verse 17. Let me just read verse 16 just for a little bit of more context. When he entered Rome, finally, Paul was allowed to stay by himself and with the soldier who was guarding him. I love this. After three days, what did he rest? Take a nap for three days after the shipwreck and he finally got there? But knowing the personality of Paul after three days, what did he do? Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I forced to appeal to Caesar. I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. As much as what the Jews have done to the Apostle Paul, he never let it get to him. Do you know that it's impossible to actually reach people and be offended with them at the same time. It's impossible. He had such love, even at the end of his life, towards the Jews. And as you notice here, he did, offend, he did defend himself to a degree, but for their sake, so that they would believe his message, so that they would be saved. He loved the Jews. They're the ones that arrested him. Remember Agabus? Look, if you go to Jerusalem you're going to be arrested. They're going to bind you and put you in prison and kill you. He's like, I know. Many of us would be like, sweet, I'm staying here. There's a love ministry. But he had a mission and that was to go to Rome. God wanted him before the president, the highest of highest in the land because God is jealous for his people. He wants a people. He wants his message to be known. That's what the book of Acts is all about, isn't it? The book of Acts is all about the central theme or the central passage or verse is Acts 1.8. It started in Jerusalem and it ends in Rome. But does it really end in Rome? No. Somehow we're in Oviedo, Florida and we know about this message. Somehow in the grace and the sovereignty of God, the one of the most unreached nations on the planet in Japan, there's a church and it's quadrupled. 
Not because the gospel works, it's some sort of pragmatism, but it works because it says in Romans 1.16 that it is the power of God unto salvation. And you're sitting there because someone shared it with you. How will they know? How will they believe? Somebody has to be sent to you. And when I was in high school, I went to LA and somebody had the boldness to share the gospel with me. And 21 layers later, I got to thank him. And in Really, his wife was in tears, and she just couldn't believe it. Simple track that someone gave me, shared the gospel, and really, you could make an argument. Hundreds of people know Jesus now because of that. It's the same with your life. It's going to continue to multiply because it is the power of God and its salvation. It doesn't stop. Nothing will stop this church. Now, if we blow it and, you know, we, as we, I had 50, we talked to 50 leaders yesterday at our leader, annual leadership retreat in August. I said, look, the local church may stop. There are churches that do close its doors. But Matthew 16 is talking about the universal church that will never end. God will always have a remnant. Always. That is his promise. And we should be so encouraged by that. So what did he do? He called the leaning men of the Jews. Instead of going to the synagogues, he couldn't. So he said, hey, I can't go to you. You come to me. So he called them, and they came to his house. And really, in Romans 9, you see Paul's heart, and we'll see this often. I'll read in, uh, maybe a, a few passages between Romans 9. He takes a little bit of pause. You know, there's the, the uh, indicatives of the gospel in Romans 1 through 8. He explains this marvelous, amazing gospel, and then and then, he, and then he, he pauses for a moment. And reading Romans brings so much context to this last chapter. He wrote the letter before he visited them. They knew these things. In fact, these people who came in, they probably already knew about the letter to Rome. They probably already read this about his love for the Jews. And so we pick up in Romans 9, 9, 1 through 3. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me, the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed. Do you know what Paul is saying? Can any of us say something like that because we love someone so much? I'm not sure if I could do that. That might be embarrassing to say that in front of my own church. But if all of, you, all, of you, all of a sudden, you know, you just, all these people, all, all of you guys were unsaved, let's just say. And I just was pleading to you every single week, please be saved. Paul would say, look, I, let me be a curse so that you, if, if God could do that. He doesn't do that, of course. He doesn't play that game. But he was just saying, it shows Paul's heart. Uh, I, I would be a curse for you so that you would know that you are God's chosen people. And the gospel is for you along with the Gentiles. I would be separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's talking about the Jews. Some of these people who came to his house, he showed hospitality in, a, in his own jail cell. And he said, look, I want you to know him. He said this often. He's like, I, I, even to the higher ups, remember, through the trials that he went through. He's like, I wish you would know Christ, but not these chains. And I'm in chains for your sake. 
Can't get much more loving than that, can you? Romans 10.1, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Do we have that in our heart? Look, if you get up in the morning and the first thing you watch is the news, your heart is going to be hardened. You may be a lover of truth, but be careful that your heart doesn't move more to a love for this country or conservatism or red, so to speak, than Jesus. Because your heart can be hardened even towards your own kinsmen, Americans. Often we say, oh, America this, America that, America. You didn't see Paul do that, did you? Over and over, Paul just kept saying, oh, the Jews, all the Jews. And they were the ones who put him in prison. He had every right to be offended with them in some sense, right? But he continued to keep his heart unoffended. And so God used him powerfully. Powerfully. So why did Paul need to explain himself? He needed to just say, look, this is why I'm in chains. I'm, I'm in chains <laughs> because of my people, but I don't like that. I am stating truth. He was innocent. It's not some, he, he, he's, he's in jail because they thought he was some leader of a sect. They thought he was in jail because he, he uh, uh, profaned the temple, right? As we looked earlier in the book of Acts. And Paul was also in trouble because of treason in Rome. He was in big trouble. He was on his way to die. And he needed to defend himself for one reason. Not to just say, oh, I'm innocent just for his namesake but so that they would believe this gospel and, and they would know his heart for them. Is it always right to defend yourself? Not always. But as you see, there's a subtlety in Paul's letters, even in Corinthians, he had to ex- defend his apostleship. But during the trial of Claudius Lysus, Felix, Festus, Herod Agrippa, I mean, he was before some pretty big guys, wasn't he? It would have been pretty intimidating probably for all of us to be in front of. But he believed Jesus' message that when you're before the council, I will give you the words through my, through my Holy Spirit. And he did, didn't he? Paul was clear. He was on trial because of the hostility of the Jews. He didn't commit treason. He wasn't some leader of some crazy random sect. This was a part of Jesus' plan since day one, since Genesis 3.15, and they knew it, but they were just hardened. He was free from offense, and he was free from all guilt of all these accusations, but he simply wanted to talk to the Jews before, he probably heard, before they heard it, maybe firsthand from somebody else. And so Paul's love for them is bleeding through this text. We cannot be offended with those we try to reach. There's so many reasons that the enemy will hand us throughout our lifetime to be offended. Whether it's your neighbors, your crazy neighbors next door. How many people have a crazy neighbor? A lot of us. How many of us have hostile 
family members? What about coworkers? So many reasons to be offended. We've got to remain white hot for our love for people. And how do you do that? How do you actually do that? All of us have to ask that question. In fact, it's important just even now just to think, who are you offended with? It's so easy to be offended when you watch the news. That's what they want. They want to provoke anger on either side. Whether it's the news or trying to make some sort of utopia here in the States or trying to even uh, deal with people who are hostile towards the gospel itself. It is important for us not to be offended. Listen to what Richard Baxter, a Puritan, said in the 1600s. Experience has fully proved that works of charity do most powerfully remove prejudice and open the heart to words of piety. If men see that you are addicted to good, to do good, they will the more easily believe that you are good and that it is good which you persuade them to. When they see that you love them and seek their good, they will more easily trust you. And when they see that you seek not the things of this world, they will the less suspect your your intentions and the more easily be drawn by you to seek that which you seek. Amen? Thomas Brooks, in the same era, he said this, the lives of ministers oftentimes convince more strongly than their words. Their tongues may persuade, but their lives command their lives command. We need to be, and we're going to see here in a moment, Paul was in the business of persuasion. Oh, he, like the best of them, probably the best. But he lived a life of integrity. Those Jews could never, ever say that he was offended. He lived a life that was worthy of his calling as he later wrote to the Ephesians. In verse 21, it says this, moving on, he they said to him, we have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. So they were, we don't know their hearts. Some scholars say that they were just trying to stay out of trouble. But we desire to hear from you what your views are for concerning this sect. It is known to us that it is spoken against, this, against everywhere. So they knew, look, Roman, uh, when Paul wrote, uh, came on the scene, this wasn't the first time that Rome heard the gospel. The gospel has been preached, obviously the letter. And uh, in, in fact, if you remember in Acts 18, Claudius kicked out a bunch of Jews from Rome and then they ended up showing up on the scene in Acts 18. So the gospel was there. So I, they, I mean, whether they were playing a game or whether they were sincere and really wanting to know the gospel. But if someone in your life is, we don't know their hearts, but if they're asking you questions, you answer them. First Peter 3.15 says that. You need to give an answer why you hope. You need to help them. If they're hostile and they begin to put a wall up, then you don't necessarily owe them an answer. We don't want to throw pearls to swine. But if they're genuinely hungry, and Paul said, hey, I'll take this opportunity. We'll set up a date and they'll come over. And we eat matzah bread and... Hummus, and we'll talk about Jesus. 
No, they're in Rome, so they'll probably have masticholi and meatballs. So they set a date to come back and hear the gospel. Number one, what he did was he testified, watch this, and uh, in verse, let's see, we need to go to verse 24 here. But when they had set a day for Paul, they came back to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. And I think it's uh, noteworthy to just say this, that at the time, Nero was not hostile towards Christians. Look, there's always going to be hostility coming from somebody, whether it's our own government, whether it's our friends, our family, socially, uh, politically. There's there's always going to be opposition. So it wasn't coming from Rome because obviously they let Paul have large numbers in his cell. Where was it coming from? The Jews. It was still coming from the Jews. Now, we all know what happens in AD 70. This is happening in the late 60s, most likely, 63, maybe 62, 63. In about seven years, God would completely annihilate the religion of Judaism as we know it. AD 70, they ransacked Jerusalem, destroyed it, destroyed the temple, and that was the end of it. That was pretty much the end of the Pharisees and Sadducees as we know it. And that's what he's going to do with every other religion on the planet when he comes back. Amen? He's coming back as a lion. And he is the only king. He is the only king. And later on, when the Christians, in the next 280 years or so, 200 years, if that, uh, saying Jesus is king was a direct violation of their religion. Because who was king in Rome? Caesar. It just hadn't gotten to that point yet. But God is behind all that so that he would spread his gospel in one of the most horrific persecutions this land has ever known. It was, if you look at church history, that was one of the worst. But the church survived it and it thrived. In fact, when Constantine came in, things got too comfortable and then, th- then the church began to weaken throughout the Middle Ages until the Great Reformation came. Caleb and I are going through 70, what is it, 73 lessons in uh, church history, and uh, it's just so awesome. It, it, as, we're going, as we went through the Middle Ages, we're like, please, when's the Reformation? We're like, could we just skip this awful period? <laughs> People were being saved during that time. God was faithful, but the Reformation, there's nothing more glorious than that. So in verse 24, it says this, some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but uh, others, excuse me, uh, but others would not believe. We'll stop there. So what, how did he actually, what did he share with these Jews as they came in? Number one, they testified of the kingdom of God. It actually took a while. It wasn't just the gospel, but it was the whole kingdom. In fact, I think it's really important that when you share the gospel, yes, I think there's, times where you share the 30-second testimony on the train or the subway or something like that. We all have to have that 30 to 60 testimony. But when you have time, unpack the kingdom of God. And what is the kingdom of God? It had to do with the rule and reign of God. It has to do with uh, 
not only just the gospel, it holds the gospel. It's a bigger umbrella. It has to do with God's rule and reign. You can go back from Genesis through Revelation to show people the story of God and how he's always ruled and reigned, how he's always sovereign, uh, how he's still sovereign today. Uh, Sin, Satan, uh, the, the whole kingdom, the wrath of God, salvation, sanctification. It's the whole thing. It's the whole counsel of God. So Paul had some time. It says day and night. He obviously had time, two years, really, being in jail in his own house, having people come in and out, and he got to do a lot of work from there. In fact, it says Romans 14, 17, says that for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's more than just Jesus dying for your sins. It's explaining how God created us to have relationship. And how it started in the Garden of Eden and you walk people through. That's why it's so important to know for yourself the the whole counsel of God, as Paul said in Acts 20, 27. Second thing he did was persuaded them concerning Christ. He consistently persuaded them to come to Christ. In Acts 19, 8, he says, And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and what? Say it, persuading, persuading them about the kingdom of God. Persuading is kind of offensive, right? It's arguing why Christ is king. It's more than just saying God has a wonderful plan for your life. 2 Corinthians 5.11 says this, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. Mark Dever says this, pastor in Washington, D.C., the Christian call to evangelism is a call not simply to persuade people to make decisions, but rather to proclaim to them them the good news of salvation in Christ, to call them to repentance, and to give God the glory for regeneration and conversion. We don't fail in our evangelism if we faithfully faithfully present the gospel and yet the person is unconverted. That's not up to us. We fail only if we don't faithfully present the gospel at all. Amen? Leave the results to God. But Paul, make no mistake, Paul did not lean on his intuition. He did did not lean on human wisdom or but rather the law, rather the word of God. He took them through the Old Testament scriptures, Acts 13, 16 to 52. I'm not gonna read that whole passage, but that's a great refresher. And when he was talking to the Jews versus when he was talking to the pagans in Acts 17 in Athens, it was a different message. It was a different approach, but it was still nonetheless the word of God. He always preached using the word. Sometimes he started with creation like he did in Acts 17. Sometimes he started with the Old Testament with Abraham or he started with Moses and he showed them how Christ came as the Messiah, the promised Messiah, how he died, was buried, and then he rose from the grave confirming salvation. He used the word. But you know what he also did? And I think it's important for all of us when we're in evangelism is to bring people to a decision. We need to, it's not a sales pitch. It's not like, what do you think? How did I do? Do you want to buy it? On sale, I'll slash the price. No, 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 no. It's not about you. 
It's how they respond to God. You just presented the gospel. You're asking them to respond to God, not to you. You're not even asking them, per se, to join your church. Watch this. This is straight from Scripture. This is so important to incorporate in your gospel presentation. And it, it, it look, the reason why this is so hard is it, it's, it's uncomfortable. It's so bold. But yet Paul did it. And we would all say Paul is a very successful evangelist, right? Acts 17, 31. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. In other words, he said, look, you can decide. But there are consequences to your decision. And to plead with people, to say, you need to come to a decision. Yes, of course that's offensive. Because a lot of times, we're like, hey, we're just going to bless people. We just want to bless people. Hmm. Yeah, we do want to bless people. We want to bless people with the truth. With the true gospel so that they can respond with a yes or a no or I'll want to learn more. That was the only three responses in the scripture. Not, oh, that was so touching. <laughs> Second Corinthians 6, 1 to 2, and working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in what? In vain. I'm not wasting my time. For he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Everybody say, now. Now. You know, I I think the reason why we don't say now is because we don't believe it. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today. That is, by the way, you might say, well, that's kind of manipulation because now I'm kind of, well, let God decide that. By you saying now is not manipulation. It's an important part of your gospel presentation. Hebrews 3, 7 to 12. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways as I swore my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Why? Take care, my brethren, that they're not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Don't be like them. I've showed you my goodness, my grace, my kindness. Don't walk away from this situation. Don't leave hardened. You never know if there'll be another guy like me to tell you the truth before you die. Right? I woke up with a text message this morning. I told you earlier. Somebody in their middle age dying in their sleep and they don't know why. That's sobering. That's real life. 
But the encouraging thing is that although the gospel does divide, many people say, well, why? I mean, we don't want to bring more division. There's already so much division in this earth, and I recognize that. I understand why. I understand that. I don't want any more division. I don't like division. None of us do. But the question is not, does the gospel divide or does this doctrinal truth divide? The question is, is it true? Is it true? Because I'll tell you, if it's true, it what? It will divide. It will divide. Acts 14.4 says, But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. It's not like another evangelist came along and said, hey, Paul, look, you're dividing the city. This is God's messenger. I'm not trying to be provocative by saying this, but God divides. God divides. That's what he does. My job is to offend everyone here. Get used to it. I am not going to tickle anyone's ear because God doesn't. This is what he says in his word, doesn't he? He divides. And you know what he does in heaven? Is he unites everyone who believes. So he unites and divides. And that's the God we serve. And that's the message we preach, right? Acts 17, 4-5 says, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. This is what the message does. This is what it does even now in other countries and even in our own. Acts 18, 6 and 8 says this, But when they resisted and blasphemed, he took out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now I will go to the Gentiles. And notice he goes back and forth, back and forth. He's not lying. or he's just, He loves the Jews. He's called to the Gentiles, but he just can't get over the fact because he is one. And he loved Jewish, the Jewish people. He knew he was grafted in. Then he left there and went to the house of the man named Tidius, Justice, a worshiper of God, and whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. God always has a remnant. Even in the midst of all this rejection, even in the midst of all this turning away, have hope, church, that he's still saving people. Yes, it's the few. I mean, he says that. He says, few find it, the narrow way. That's why I don't think we should ever be discouraged when we go out. It's hard, but we trust God's word that few do find it. Isn't that true? How much evangelism have you done? I mean, this church has done a lot of it. Your bags are always full of seed when we leave the United States, and they're about empty. Just a few for the TSA guys, right? And as we come home, it's empty. We've done our work. You know, God is the one who waters, I mean, the, grows the seed. All we could do is plant and water, plant and water, plant and water. But he's going to bring the growth. 
Acts 19, 8, 9, he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were being hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way, which is Jesus and his church, before the people, he withdrew from them and took the way to disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. In other words, we can't stay all day with hostile people. We got to move on to the hungry. Number three, Paul remained bold in the midst of rejection, in the midst of opposition. And he continued to share boldly the truth. Verse 25 says this to 29. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoke one more parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through the through Isaiah, the prophet to your fathers. What a wonderful verse for the inspiration of Scripture, by the way. Kind of goes along with 2 Peter 1, or 19 to 21. But the Holy Spirit spoke through Isaiah saying this, and it was as it was relevant 700 years prior, it's relevant now in that house. And it's even relevant today in this house. Go to the people and say this. You will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people will become dull, and their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. That's a hard passage. I still think every time I read that, I'm like, Lord, what did you mean by that? (laughs) Don't you want people to believe? At least swirls around my mind. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will also listen. And when he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. I can only imagine. But Jeremiah 7, 25 to 26 says this, Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent you all my servants and the prophets daily, rising early and sending them. Do you see God's heart? He wants you to know the truth. He constantly sends people in your life and in your friends' lives and your coworkers' lives so that they would know the truth. That is his mercy. Even with the stiff neck, and they get that word for trying to put a yoke on on an oxen and they just, they stiffen up so you can't put it on, those stubborn things. But that's what he calls us. We stiffen our necks. I don't want to believe. I want to stay the way I am. Yet they did not listen to me and incline their ear, but stiffened their neck, and they did more evil than their fathers. Jeremiah 35, 15, Also I have sent to you all my servants and the prophets, sending them again and again, saying, Turn now every man from his evil way and amend your deeds, and do not go after other gods to worship them. Then you will dwell in the land which I have given you and to your forefathers, but you have not inclined your ear or listened to me. You know, the rejection of God's message never ends well, does it? It never ends well. Second Kings 17, 13, the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes according to to all the law which I've commanded your fathers, which I sent you through my servants, the prophets. He's going to continue to send them to us. They're preachers today. They're gospel messengers. They're called Christians. Matthew 21, 33 to 
41, if you remember this parable, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and a builder uh, and built a tower. And then he rented it out to the vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Now he's talking to the Pharisees and they're pretty much going to pick up what he's putting down here. And again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first and they, you know, did the same thing. But afterward, he sent his son, you know, you know who that is, to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said amongst themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And by the way, God owns everything. There's kind of an absurdity to this passage in one sense that they would do this to God's own son. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine growers? Never ends well. They said to him, we will bring those wretches to a wretched end and we will rent it out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay, the, pay him the proceeds at proper seasons. And who's that? You and me. Gentiles. God will always have a remnant. He will always have believers. We never have to worry about that. Our job is to simply present the gospel message in its fullness, correctly, faithfully, and let God do its work. The Jews ended up leaving Paul's house, but if you didn't think that was intense, wait till you hear these messages. Isaiah 6, 9 to 10, he just repeats that again. And then in Revelation 22, this is what God does. This is the meaning of this passage. He reads from Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. It is intense. We get to see something in God's character. This is who he is. And while it's hard, there is a grace there. How many know that it says in the scriptures that there are varying degrees of punishment in hell? There's varying degrees of that, and it's based on what you know, right? It is God's grace that if somebody continually rejects, that they would not know more. So what? So they would not incur greater judgment. It is his mercy in this passage, isn't that wonderful? That even in the midst of someone putting a fence up, a wall up, high to God. He says, I'm still merciful to you. That's the God we serve, right? Revelation twenty two eleven. but this is what happens with those who continue to have hard hearts. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And the one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Psalm 81, 10 to 11 says, But my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me, so I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart. He gave them over to walk in their own devices. 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 to 12 says this, With all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, so to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence, a deluding influence. That's hard. 
God will send them a deluding influence. Planes, that's just the Greek word for wandering, deceptive spirit. He literally sends them a, a wicked spirit to cause more confusion in their life. You probably know people like that. It's hard to talk to them, and it's getting harder, it seems. There's a delusion over this land, even. A deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in what? Wickedness. God's ultimately just giving them what they want. And I think it's important to know this, the biblical basis of this, to know that God is not being cruel. He's just simply giving them what they want. And we need to pray against that, that their hearts would be softened, that God would have mercy and open their hearts. Romans 1 18 to 32, we've often read this. In fact, that's just literally the next, if, if your Bible is open to Acts 28, the last part, you'll, you don't have to turn much. But in verse 18, I think it's worth reading. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident with them. In other words, everybody's born with a God-shaped hole and they know that they need a, they, they, they know that they're aware of him. They know that, that he's created the world. Even pagans understand that, but then they can further harden their heart and not believe. For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, sun, the, the sunset, the sunrise, the beautiful things that you've seen in his creation, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what, he has been, what has been made so that they are without excuse. So a lot of times you might say, well, what about that guy in the jungle? You know, it's just not fair that they don't know. They do know. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give him thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God, this amazing, wonderful, incredible, merciful, gracious God. They exchanged him for an image in the form of a corruptible man and of the birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. You often see that in Japan or in Asia, these statues, very demonic-looking statues. They created this beautiful, incredible God for that. The only way someone could stoop so low is to have a delusion over them. To have, they're, they're, by the way, there have been missionaries, a whole move of God in North Korea before it shut down. The problem is, is that they wanted to worship man rather than God. Therefore, God gave them over to the lust of their heart, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, homosexuality. And in the same way, the men abandoned the natural function of, the, of women and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person's due penalty of their error. And just as they did not not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to what? A depraved mind. 
a mind that is deluded, as it says in Second Corinthians or Second Thessalonians two, to those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. There's always some new thing coming out, isn't there? Disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they knew the ordinance of God, those who practice such things are worthy of death. And they not only do the same, but they give a hearty approval to those who practice them. Welcome to the United States of America. That's what's happening here, isn't it? Why should we be surprised? It's just from Scripture. And I want a church that is discerning, that is full of truth. They could go to bed putting their head on the pillow knowing the truth that sets them free. It's hard. Sure, we wrestle. I don't like this as much as anybody else doesn't like it. God doesn't like it. But nevertheless, it is truthful, isn't it? There are consequences for sin, and God is always He's sending more people out in the field to preach the gospel. He loves people. He wants people to come to him. He wants to rescue people from darkness and put them in the light. And that's where we come into the picture, right? There's still more to be saved. He hasn't come back yet. He's long-suffering. He doesn't want anyone to what? Perish. That's who he is. 1 Kings 22, 19 to 23 Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. The Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? This is interesting. He's asking, who will entice? Who am I going to send? Who's my guy? And one said this a while, another said that. Then the spirit, and then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all the prophets. And then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all, the, all your prophets. And the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. This is the God we serve. He uses the enemy as a pawn to further delude people's minds who reject. And that should that shouldn't excite us. I don't think we should call Ricky up here and start worshiping, but but it should grieve us and we should have a biblical theology of the fullness of God. That this is who he is. Problem is not many churches preach this. So it's so foreign. It sounds so new, but yet even the Jews in Paul's house understood this. They had the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written. They had scrolls. They knew. They knew kings. They knew the prophets. And they chose to largely in part reject the Lord. All right. Well, now on to some encouraging things. 
God still had a plan for the Jews. Romans 11, one through two, I love this. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah and how he pleads with God against Israel? What was that passage about? The whole passage is about, there's 7,000 remnant. Elijah's like, I'm the only guy. He's like, no, 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 no. There is more. And you might be in distress saying, nobody's saved. Nobody wants the Lord. And God's saying, oh, there are. There's lots of them around the world. Lots of them. He's always saving. Always saving. And he's got a plan for the Jews. Romans eleven twenty three and 26. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. And so all of Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Amen. I'm staring at the Jewish flag just right behind there in Japan and the great nation of Italy and the flag of Orlando. But the... The important thing is to pray for Jerusalem. The Bible says that, to pray for our Jewish friends, to bless them, to pray them, to hold them dear in our heart while everybody else hates them. We're to believe that God has a plan for them. There will be a deliverer. And of course, we know who that is. It's Jesus. In Zechariah, I love this, Zechariah 12, 10, there's a partial promise here, a promise that's already been partially fulfilled and more will come. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look upon me whom they have what? Pierced. It's interesting that it's past tense, isn't it? Do you know why? Because it's not so much for Israel in that time in Zechariah to look forward to say one day someone will be pierced. And they didn't know that would be Jesus per se but they would look back one day when Israel is about to be saved, they would look and say, we pierced our savior. We pierced him. How could we do that? But yet this message would be so relevant to their ears, they would be saved. They will mourn for him, capital H. As one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. That's Jesus. There is a plan for the Jews and they will look at that passage one day in the future and they will look back and say, that's what we did. Relook at Isaiah 52 at the end, verse 13, and all of Isaiah 53. It's a looking back. It's Israel in the millennial kingdom. It's looking back and saying, oh my goodness, what have we done? How could we have done this to this one? This is the one we should have looked for and believed. And there's still a plan, isn't there? So good. You know what Paul did? He just simply released them. He didn't badger them. He moved on. That's what Jesus tells us to do. Number four, Paul remained on mission. He witnessed and he was intentional with those around him. He couldn't go anywhere. He's like, look, I got to make the best of it. We make the best of things, church. We don't complain. We make the best of it. 
That's who we are. We're a joyful people. We take the circumstances, we believe it's the providence of God, and we, and we witness despite the things that we may not like. And we use it for his glory. So for the next two years, Paul, in his rented apartment, he was just, I love this. I, I mean, this is one of the most profound passages in all of scripture. He stayed full two years in his rented quarters and he was welcoming those who came in and preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with what? All openness, unhindered by the grace of God before it got really hot in Rome. There was a chance for those people to hear the gospel before Rome burned, literally. And let me remind you again that you cannot chain the man, or you can chain the man, but you cannot chain the message. It is impossible. What I love about this is it just gives us so much hope. You can literally shut down Afghanistan, but there will still be a church. It doesn't matter. The enemy will constantly throw fireballs at the church. But we have the shield of faith. Right? You could chain the man. But you cannot chain his gospel down. It will continue to thrive in places that you'd only dream to get to. He never wasted his time, did he? He wrote four letters. <laughs> Some of the best, by the way. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. This is what he says in Philippians 1.13. My imprisonment in the cause is for the cause of Christ has become known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard in Rome and everyone else. It kept spreading even though he was in chains. Philippians 4.22. All the saints greet you, especially those in Caesar's household. And he had a lot of help. In Colossians 4, 10 to 14, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. And also Barnabas' cousin, Mark, he had guys in every place. He had connections. By whom you receive instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. I love that. If you notice, Mark, the one he had a sharp dispute with. And also Jesus, who's also called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, which the one basically, probably most likely, without Paul, Paul never visited Colossae. He sent Epaphras to go plant the church on his behalf. Who is one of your number, a bondslave of Jesus, sends your greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in, at the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis, which are just cousin cities, basically, sister cities in Colossae, in the region. Luke, the physician, sends his greetings and also Demas. And then excuse me, Philemon 24, as do Mark, Aristarchus, and Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. He had guys. He continued the work, the ministry, continued to strengthen churches. And then after Paul was released, after two years, uh, there's no record in here per se, but as history knows it, uh, he was released and then recaptured. And when he was recaptured, he wasn't uh, in an apartment. 
He was at the Mamertine prison in Rome and still there. I want to get there one day and just walk in that little dungeon, that damp, dank dungeon. It's so tiny. You have to, some say you have to even, it, it's just, you can't fully stand. And, but that's where he was. And we don't know how long, not very long. And he had, there's a little window and it looks out and that's where court was in session where trials ran, ran in, in Rome. And he wrote, he wrote uh, First and Second Timothy, and he wrote Titus there. And I thought it would be fitting just to read the last portion of that, because that's exactly where we are right now, just seeing Paul write these other four letters, and then he was released. Some say he even went to Spain. I don't know. We don't know that for sure, but some say he did go to Spain. But turn with me to 2 Timothy 4, and then we'll close. These are literally the last inspired words of Paul before AD 64, the persecution of Nero broke out, and then sometime maybe a few years later, Paul died. He was martyred for his faith. For I am ready to be poured out. He knew he was going to die. There's no, no chance he was getting out of this one. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. The course I have kept the faith. And in, in the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all of us, even in this room today, who have loved or love his appearing. Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. That grieved him. He still lived with pain. He died in pain, but yet he died with hope. I'm not going to read the rest. He just You could read that for yourself, but you get the picture that there were some who were with him and some who deserted him. And if you remember in Corinthians, he said after the shipwrecks, three of them, the beatings, the cold nights, the sleepless nights, the hunger, the pain that he went through, what was his greatest pain? The church. The bride of Christ. He loved the church. And he was faithful to Christ and his bride until the very end of his life. What have you learned in the book of Acts? You might want to jot some of these down. I don't know if you have this up there. Maybe Joel can put it up there for you for life group. But I want to encourage you this week to really think in your time with the Lord some of these questions What have you learned about Jesus? What have you learned about yourself, the word, others, the kingdom, evangelism, church growth, church discipline, God's discipline, purity of the church, boldness, godly leadership, discipleship. The list can go on and on, but I encourage you guys to talk in your life group and in your discipleship. What did I learn? How am I different? In this last year of going through the book of Acts, what do I know about Christ? 
What's my commitment level now to him and his church? The last question I want to give to everybody this morning is, the scene started in Jerusalem in an upper room with 120. We saw the church break out with thousands, 3,000, 5,000. It kept growing. It spread through persecution to Judea and Samaria and then eventually to Rome and eventually to this room here. The question I ask is, will you be faithful to the same mandate that Jesus gave to his disciples in Acts 1-8? Because that's what it means to be a church member. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to be faithful to this mandate. It's not the job of the elders. It's not the job of your life group leaders. It's your job. It's our job. But I'll tell you one thing is true. You cannot remain neutral after this study. You can't be on the fence. You may not like what I have said. What I've said is true. What I said was true. I simply just presented you the entire book of Acts, line by line. And you can't remain neutral. There's always a response to his word. And I want to give you that chance as we, are we taking communion this morning? Yes, okay, all right. Just wanted to make sure before I overpromise something and underdeliver. But why don't you uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11. I think it's important that we, I wish we could do this every week. I honestly do. Some say, why don't we? That's a good question. But I, I want to, again, just read to you from Paul's writing about the Lord's Supper. And uh, I love communion because it reminds me again what I'm to be thankful for. His church was birthed by the martyr's blood of Christ. He died to make this happen in this room. And not only that, but he gave us fellowship. He gave us a church to belong to a family, rich family. And there's, like we talked yesterday in the leadership, there's so many metaphors of the church. Beautiful. I wish I had time to go through them. But I want to read this in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. It's a very familiar passage. For I have received from the Lord that which I have also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's to serve as a reminder, this bread and the wine. It's to to serve as a reminder of what Christ did for you. And then in the same way, he took the cup and also the supper. uh, After supper, he took the cup of the new covenant. In my blood, do this. And often as you drink in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread, And drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that's what we long for. We long, as what John said in the end of Revelation, come Lord Jesus. When was the last time you said that? When was the last time you just got in the car and you started going to work and said, Lord, (laughs) 
Do you not tarry any longer? If I was waking up at one in the morning, I would too. And then there's the college student who wakes up at noon. Says, Lord, how long will you tarry? (laughs) Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks and eats, I'm sorry, eats and drinks and eats and drinks in judgment to himself, for he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, so this was happening, and a number of you are asleep or dead, in other words. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Kind of goes along with, if you humble yourself, you won't be humbled. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. We are not like the world, church. We take this communion in a worthy manner. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for, the one, wait for one another. If one is hungry, don't take the communion elements to be your breakfast. But let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So Paul had more to say about this. But here's the point. Take this communion only as a believer. Do yourself a favor and don't bring judgment on yourself. But I will say that it would be amazing and I think it would behoove you this morning in light of just even the news of you never know when you're going to die that today is the day of salvation and I would give your life to him. He is king over your life. Whether you call him Lord or not, he's Lord, right? Whether you call him the savior of the world He is the Savior of the world. He is the only way of salvation, John 14, 6. And the thing is, you come to him as Savior because he's the only one to save you from the wrath of God. And you come to him as Savior because he died for you to bring you into relationship with God the Father. That everyone, it says in the Bible, everyone comes short of the glory of God. Everyone sins. We're all in the same boat. The only difference is some take him up on the offer and some reject. (laughs) That was perfect timing. (laughs) Out of the mouth of babes, Jesus said. Either that, the rocks will cry out. Someone will, right? It's appropriate to respond to the gospel. Say yes to him. And for the rest of us, let's take it in a worthy manner in that we make sure that we're coming before him with the right heart, unoffended. With man, with him, that we deal with our sin appropriately. Mourn over your sin. God is close to the what? The broken hearted. He's close to the brokenhearted. We said yesterday a quote that got us all chuckling. 
We said something along the lines of, you know, should, should we allow the jerks in our church? The question is not whether jerks will come in, you right? I mean, they, they're going to be present. They're here. I mean, we're all a jerk. We're all sinners. <laughs> We've all been that way at times to each other, to our spouses, to our kids, to our coworkers, to our boss, to the Lord himself. The question is, do they mourn over their sin? Do they mourn of the fact that they are a jerk? That's what qualifies them. That's what qualifies everybody in this church, right? That we recognize our sin. You don't need to come here. This church is not for the perfect. It's for the broken. It always will be that way. That's how the Lord wants it. It's a family. It's a hospital. It's a rehab center. It's for people that recognize they're lost. They need light. It's a lighthouse. They need salvation. They need healing. They need restoration. They need love. They need encouragement. They need exhortation. Amen? I love the church. Some, probably some special battery. Just cut the guy off. Buy the batteries. <laughs> but why don't we do this? Why don't we take communion after I pray briefly? And, um, and then we'll have, uh, like you normally see it, you just, this, uh, how do we do it again? I don't remember now. This, <laughs> this row, just come and get the, just come and get the bread. <laughs> and the wine. Figure it out. Up, I, I come down and go through the center aisle. That's right. Just, thank you, Jessica. Thank you for administration. Wonderful. You're like, it's not that complicated. It isn't. All right, Father, thank you for salvation. Thank you for the church. Thank you for your blood. Without none of this would be possible. Thank you for the body that was broken, for none of this would be possible. It wouldn't even it wouldn't make sense that we meet. If there's no death and resurrection and no payment for sin. Let your church know this morning one thing, that there is forgiveness in the cross. There's grace for you this morning. In the blood of Jesus, in the body of Jesus, there's an empty tomb that proves that he is who he says he is. He came and he fulfilled his promise as the Messiah, is the one who take away our sins, is the Lamb of God. And Father, I pray that you would stir faith this morning by the word of God that we heard. Illuminate the minds of the believer and the unbeliever in this room. I pray, Father, that they would give their life to you. They would say yes and talk to either an elder or their life group leader about being baptized. And I pray, God, that you would continue to save people here in Oviedo and Orlando and the nations of the earth may continue as you said it would on the day of Pentecost. In Jesus' name, amen.